And, you know, it's, I'm not trying to be uh, difficult or insulting or anything like that <laughs> when I say it. But it's the fact is, if you just look around yourself, look at the people you know, the people you work with, they're good people. You know, they work hard. They are conscientious. They're good people. Mm -hmm. But if you ask yourself honestly... Uh, how many of them are truly great? I'm not, I'm not just good. They're world-class great performers. The, the truth is hardly anybody you know is in that class. Mm -hmm. uh, you know the world-class great performers because you read about them and see them on TV and so forth. But hardly – I mean the, the vast majority of people you know, are there, they're okay. Mm -hmm. You know, They're fine. But that's it. That, that's it. Even though they have worked – 20, 30, 40 years sometimes at their job, you know, they're okay. What is going on, everybody? Thank you so much for joining yours truly, Ryan Caligiuri, on this week's episode of Cut the Crap Podcast, where every single week, you know what I'm doing here. I'm reading a book, condensing that book down to its core set of golden nuggets, bringing the author on the show, having a conversation with them about the golden nuggets, and I'm here every single week just trying to save you a little bit of time and bring a little bit of information to you that I believe can spark some change in your life. Now, if you're a fan of the show, then please do me a favor. Go online, whatever platform you're listening on, rate and review the show. Take a screen capture of that rating of that review and send it to podcast at ryancalajuri.com, and I'll make sure you get entered into the draw every single quarter for a prize. Last quarter, we gave away a laptop. This quarter, we're giving away an Apple HomePod, a Google Home, or an Amazon Echo. The winner, I'm just going to email them, ask them what they want. I'm going to buy it and ship it to them. Nice and easy. Also, don't forget to follow me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. It's really where you're going to be able to engage with me, ask me questions, just see what I'm doing throughout the week. And uh, to me, that's really important because I like to connect with all of you listening out there and see who's listening and definitely have a dialogue. And thank you so much to everybody who has reached out to me and let me know how the podcast has changed your life. You have no idea how much that means to me, you guys. It really means so much to me. And if the podcast has changed your life, you know, from the small aspects where it's maybe changed things tactically for you at work or maybe very big where maybe it's inspired you to do something different, let me know. I love hearing from all of you. And to me, it just, it's uh, the fuel that keeps me going. So please, don't hesitate to reach out to me. All right. So this week, what are we focusing on? This week, we have on a hell of a guy, Jeff Colvin. Now, Jeff Colvin, like I said, hell of a guy. Really enjoyed talking to him. He's the author of Talent is Overrated, What Really Separates World-Class Performers. It's a great topic. It's a great topic because oftentimes when you look at world-class performers, people say, you know, well, how do they get that way? You know, I think about LeBron, LeBron James. How did LeBron James get that way? Or, you know, Mozart. How did Mozart become so great? How did Elon Musk become Elon Musk? Oftentimes, people will give you two answers. They'll say, number one, well, it's just hard work, Ryan. They got there through hard work. Yeah, that's true. But how many of you out there know a lot of really hard workers who have been doing the same job for years, for decades, and they're not great? Probably a lot of you. The other answer is that, you know, these people, these elite individuals, they were just born with this talent. They were born to excel in whatever field they're in. But again, that's not true either. In fact, scientific evidence tells us that's not true. 
So what makes world-class performers great? Well, that's what we talk about this week with Jeff Colvin. And to me, it was an awesome, awesome discussion because it really empowers all of us, all of us, to be world-class. Because we have the ability to be world-class. And Jeff shares with us the techniques that we can use to indeed become world-class in whatever it is that we're doing. Whether you're in marketing, sales, HR, whether you change tires for a living, you mow grass, it doesn't matter what you do. You can become world-class in whatever field you're in. So it's a great episode. Definitely take some notes. Give it a listen. Let me know what you think. Like I said, connect with me online. And I'd really like to know what you think about this episode. So don't hesitate to reach out to me. I want to hear your opinions on this, whether you disagree with it, whether you'd agree with it, or how you're going to take this and drive change in your life. Again, this is Jeff Colvin. Talent is overrated. What really separates world-class performers. I will catch you back here at the end of the episode. Enjoy. Jeff, how you doing, my friend? Ryan, I'm doing fantastic. Thank you very much. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Well, it's great having you on the show. And for anybody who doesn't know you yet, or for anyone who hasn't picked up the book yet, where have you been? I mean, where have I been? <laughs> we were just talking about this beforehand. You are hitting your 10th anniversary for Talent is Overrated. I mean, 10 years, man. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah, it is. And, you know, it, it is so funny and so interesting to me that even now, People come to this book uh, as if it's brand new, uh, and uh, the the publisher, in fact, is bringing out a 10th anniversary edition this year, which has significant new material that I've added to it. But people come to this book always uh, as if it's new, and I think what that means is that the message really is timeless. It is. It truly is. And when you read it and when we go through the episode, people will see just how important this information is and some of these things we have to continuously remind ourselves of. But before we get into the episode, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do for people who don't know you yet? Uh, absolutely. Uh, my day job, as it were, is at Fortune Magazine, where I've worked for an extremely long time uh, in all kinds of roles. Uh, nowadays, I am uh, a columnist and uh, writer and editor uh, at Fortune. In addition to that, I do a lot of speaking around the world um, to business audiences of all kinds, and I love that. Uh, I just love doing it, and I love meeting the people, and learning everything I learn. I, I can't tell you how much I learned from that. And uh, as uh, we know, I write the occasional book as well. Uh, <laughs> Talent is Overrated is one of them. And uh, I've uh, done a few others and always have something uh, going in that regard. And you know, I, I have to tell you, oh, and then I'm on the radio a lot too. Mm. Uh, across the U.S., I'm on the CBS radio network every Wonderful. day. So uh, these are the things I love to do. It's a pretty good gig. So why don't we kick this off, Jeff? So in gold at Nugget number one, it says the majority of people are mediocre. So we're kind of starting, <laughs> we're starting off on a little bit more of a controversial note. But you say in the book that, you know, we tell our kids that with hard work, they'll be fine. And it's true. They will be fine. So what you're saying is most people are just okay at what they do for a living, despite the fact that they devote huge amounts of time and energy in preparation for their career. How is that possible? Shed some light on that for us. Well, you, you have really uh, hit an important point to, to, to begin with. And, you know, it's, I'm not trying to be uh, difficult or insulting or anything like that <laughs> when I say it. But it's, the fact is, if you just look around yourself, look at the people you know, the people you work with, they're good people. You know, they work hard. They are conscientious. 
They're good people. Mm -hmm. But if you ask yourself honestly, uh, how many of them are truly great? I'm not not just good. They're world-class great performers. The the truth is hardly anybody you know is in that class. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know the world-class great performers because you read about them and see them on TV and so forth. But hardly – I mean the the vast majority of people you know are there. They're okay. Mm -hmm. You know, they're fine. But that's it. That that's it. Even though they have worked 20, 30, 40 years sometimes at their job, you know, they're okay. And why is that, though? I mean, you're working for long periods of time. I guess experience is not equal uh, excellence then in that case. That's exactly right. And of course, that's just the evidence of our lives. We can see that, you know, uh, people have worked really hard for a really long time and they're not world class great. On top of that, there is actually uh, research evidence for this. If you don't believe your own life, you know, there's research <laughs> evidence for this that finds that people in a wide range of fields uh, typically do not get better with the passage of time. And in a few cases, they even get worse. Hmm. Uh, there are cases of uh, they study auditors, for example, and find that uh, highly experienced ones are less good at certain skills than new ones. Similarly with doctors, uh, sim- in, with certain parts of their uh, uh, field. So, you know, the, the lesson is what you just said. Lots of experience does not equal great performance. Mm. And I think it's something that we all need to keep in mind. And I, the reason why I started off the episode with that was maybe to ignite a fire under some people's asses to say, hey, who, who are you guys to, to call me mediocre? Yeah. Ryan, why are you yeah. calling me mediocre? Listen, yeah. it's not that you're maybe it's not that you're mediocre, but it's the fact that you're not world class. And if that upsets right. you and you say, listen, I want to be world class, then that's what takes us to the next golden nugget. So in golden nugget number two, you say that neither inborn abilities or experience determine extraordinary achievement. So before we get into how we can build this world-class performance, how we can become world-class in whatever field we're in, help us debunk this idea that so many of us hold on to, that the world's greatest talents, the world's greatest athletes, innovators, professionals, they're all blessed with this gift called talent. Right. And, you know, this I have learned from traveling all around and talking with people about this topic. This is something that it's a belief we hold really deep down inside us. We all carry this belief around with us, and it is really powerful. We, We truly believe that when you look at the greatest performers, the only way to explain their performance is they must have come into this world with an ability to do what they do. And I have to say, it's understand. I, I do understand why people believe that. When you see the greatest performers, whether they are athletes or uh, you know musicians or whatever they may be, you look at them and it, they are so good that you think, well, there's only one way to explain it. <laughs> They are a one in a million person. They came into this world with a gift because there is no other way that anybody could be that good. That is superhuman. (laughs) So that's why we all think that. The problem is there is now lots of research. I'm not spouting off my opinions about this. There is now plenty of good scientific research on this topic. And what it shows us 
is that that just isn't true. They aren't born with a one in a million gift. And the the research takes a few different forms, but basically uh, they look at the people who became world-class performers, world-class grade, and look back into their early history to see what distinguished them. And in the vast majority of cases, not all cases, but in the vast majority of cases, if you looked back at a great performer to when they were little kids, you wouldn't have known. There, there was no evidence hmm. that they were going to be great. And at the same time, if you look at child prodigies, the people who you know, do incredible stuff when they're five or six years old, and you say, well, they had to have been born with a gift. Hmm. It turns out that the vast majority of them, again, not all, but the vast majority of them, when they become adults, are not world-class great performers. Hmm. The ones that you thought would have done it didn't. And so over and over, we see this same pattern playing out. There's just no evidence hmm. of a natural, of an inborn natural gift to do anything very specific, like play golf or play tennis or play the violin hmm. or do a million other things. Now, I can see why people use that as an excuse for yes, maybe trying to just figure out, well, listen, the reason I'm not there is because, well, I don't have those kind of talents. But what you just say is actually the complete opposite. It's empowering to know that, yes. hey, you know what? These people became great because they did certain things that I'm not doing. So what did they do to get where they are? And I want to do yeah. more of that. But yeah. but what do you what do you what do you say to the people out there who are listening right now and you know they're calling BS on us and they're saying listen yep. you know Brian Jeff physical attributes they play a big role here you know Michael Phelps's six foot eight wingspan is why he's an Olympic champion LeBron James's sheer size is why he's an, uh, an NBA champion so how do you respond yeah. to people when they come at you with with that objection uh, in a few ways uh, first of all it's a very natural objection. Uh, and the reality is that when it comes to athletics, Obviously, there are certain physical traits that a person is born with or isn't born with that are important. Uh, you know, so nobody's going to argue the opposite. If you if you're seven feet tall, you're never going to be an Olympic gymnast. You know, they're all about five feet four. Mm -hmm. And if you're five feet tall, you're never going to be an Olympic uh, volleyball player mm -hmm. because they're all you know six feet eight. Mm -hmm. uh, and no amount of practice or anything else is going to change that. Mm -hmm. So it is absolutely the case that in certain athletic events, uh, physical traits that you're born with or not are important. But uh, think how many uh, five feet, four inch people there are in this world. Mm -hmm. You know, millions upon millions of them. Mm -hmm. Why do only a tiny handful become Olympic gymnasts? Right? So... Yes, uh, it's certainly true that uh, certain physical traits that you're born with are necessary in some sports, but that still doesn't explain why the great performers become the great performers. That's right. That's exactly right. And when it comes down to it, you look at the – despite the fact that people have – these advantages, these physical advantages, it doesn't matter. There's a lot of really big people out there. There's people out there with really big wingspans and big feet right. and big hands, and yet they right. still don't become Olympic champions. You right. don't, you don't, you're not just born with these and all of a sudden, well, he's an Olympic champion. No, those skills had right. to be refined, and you had to become right. a master at what you were doing, which 
leads us now to this point. So if you were mad at me for coming out and saying that the majority of people are mediocre, (laughs) uh, if you originally made excuses for yourself and you said, well, the reason why I'm not a great golfer is because, you know, I wasn't born that way or or the reason why you're not a great marketer or salesperson is because, well, I just don't have the gift of gab. Well, now that's where we get into the meat of this book. And this takes us to golden nugget number three. And golden nugget number three says, the only way to become elite in your field is through deliberate practice. So while Malcolm Gladwell's idea in Outliers of putting in the 10,000 hours of hard work may still hold water, you suggest that deliberate practice may be more important than just working hard. Talk to us more yeah. about this thing you call deliberate practice and why it's so important to achieving mastery. Yeah, uh, this is really the heart of it, as you say. Uh, and the term deliberate practice was was uh, coined by the researchers who did some really foundational work in this field several years ago, um, led by a professor named Anders Ericsson, who is a professor now at Florida State University, who is really the the leading authority, the, the top researcher in this. And he coined this term deliberate practice. So it's not just practice. It is not what most of us are doing when we think we're practicing. Uh, I learned, for example, that what I do uh, when I'm out on the driving range at the golf course is a pathetic example <laughs> of deliberate example. It's just, it's not even close. And uh, I, I learned a lot. So what is it? Because this is the key. Deliberate practice is not complicated, but it is very specific. It, it, it has specific elements. And there are only a few of them, and here they are. One, it's an activity that is designed expressly for you at your current stage in your development. What that means is it's going to change as you get better. Two, it is designed to push you just beyond your current abilities. It doesn't try to push you way beyond your current abilities because then you'll just be lost. You won't have any idea what to do. And it doesn't allow you to perform within your current abilities because then you won't grow. It is constantly pushing you just beyond what you're able to do right now. And then as you get better, it'll have to change to keep pushing you just beyond. The next factor is it can be repeated at high volume. The early researchers on this didn't understand that high repetition actually causes physical changes in your brain. That was discovered later. But they were absolutely right in noticing this. Uh, It can be repeated at high volume. And then the final factor is it involves continuous feedback. Mm. You can't get better if you don't know how you're doing. So you must always be getting continuous feedback on how how you are doing. Those are the elements of deliberate practice. And those things, repeated typically every day, often for years on end, is what the greatest performers in any field all have in common. I don't care whether it's golf or the oboe or uh, practicing law or which various elements of it or anything else. This is what flying an airplane. This is what the greatest performers have in common. They've all done this. Uh, a lot over a period of many years. 
Help us paint a picture of that. So now we have the framework yeah. for what deliberate yes. practice looks like. So help us put crystallize that a little bit. Do you have a story? Do you have an example where we might put that into practice? Uh, well, absolutely. Actually, um, a great example is the the early research, the foundational piece of research on this, which was about violinists. Hmm. And uh, that was good because they studied uh, violinists uh, who were about 20 years old and at an elite academy in Berlin. And what they found was that what distinguished the best ones from the ones that were just okay was one factor, which was the amount of practice alone that they had accumulated over the course of their entire life. How many lives, how many thousands of hours of this activity? And it's very easy to understand when it comes to music because practicing alone, being pushed by a teacher, is exactly what deliberate practice is. You can do it at high volume, right? You can do it for hours every day. A teacher can give you your feedback that you must get and then constantly tell you by, by observing you uh, what you need to do differently and then what your next practice activity is uh, to push you beyond what you're just able to do. Hmm. And so that's that, that that's the foundation of it. Um, you know, for for a, a more specific example, I come back a lot to Tiger Woods, I have hmm. to say, because <laughs> people but people who don't like this whole thesis often use Tiger Woods uh, as an objection, as hmm. a counterexample. They say, "Come on. No th- such thing as a natural gift." How on earth can you explain the career of Tiger Woods except that he was born with a natural gift? Well, we'll get into that later maybe. But when you look at how he practiced, his teacher, actually one of the, the, the person who was his teacher for the longest time as a professional, Hank Haney, wrote a book about it. And in his book, he said, you know what? What Tiger does is just like deliberate practice – as described by Jeff Colvin in his book, Talent is Overrated. Hmm. Uh, he, he said this is exactly what Tiger did. And, for example, uh, Tiger was not in the sand very often, but when he was in the sand, he was very good at getting out. And so, for example, just as an example, he would go to a bunker and throw a whole bunch of golf balls in there hmm. and step on them. Hmm in order to give himself the most difficult possible lie. And then he would work on hitting those over and over and over and then do it again uh, with the teacher observing and telling him what he needed to do. So, he, you know, that's what it is. Right, right. When it comes to deliberate practice, Jeff, should people focus on one thing at a time, two things at a time? So your example there with, with Tiger Woods, he yep. decided, you know, today I'm going to be working on, you know, getting out of the bunker, making it as difficult as possible. For somebody yeah. who's listening out there who, you know, is a sales professional, a marketing professional, uh, an accountant, uh, a student yeah. who's trying to figure out where they want to go in life, um, how can they achieve mastery in something using the concept of deliberate practice? Yeah. Well, you, you make a great point. One thing at a time and making that one thing more and more specific 
and precise. This is a characteristic of the greatest performers. They make finer and finer distinctions as they learn what to do, as they, they focus on what they do. So, uh, I mean, so that, you know, that the Tiger Woods story is actually a great example. It's a very specific mm -hmm. uh, problem he was working on, not just hitting out of the sand, but hitting out of a particular type of lie mm -hmm. in the sand. Um, and regardless of what your field is, you can keep doing this. So if you're a sales professional, as you say, okay, you don't go into a sales situation with a broad sort of uh, vague mm -hmm. goal of, I just want to make the sale. Mm -hmm. You go in there with a more precise goal for that day. For example, maybe it is today I'm going to focus on hearing the unspoken needs of the customer mm. because they won't always tell you what they need, That's right. but it's in there. If you listen the right way and for what they're not telling you, but it's in there, you will really be able to help them better and probably uh, do a better job of selling. Right. So you go into it with a, a more specific uh, goal. Let's say hearing the unspoken needs. During the uh, situation, during the conversation, you, you occasionally step outside yourself and say, okay, am I doing it? Hmm. Am, I, am I listening properly for the unspoken needs? And then afterwards, you take some extra time to focus exactly on the interaction and review it in your mind mm. and say, okay, what did I do well? And now that I think about it, what did I miss? Mm. What did I not do well? Now that requires extra time. You have to think about it ahead of time. You have to do some extra thinking during the situation. And then you have to take time to reflect on it afterwards and think about how you could have done it better. So it is extra work, but think of how much better you're going to get because you're going to realize what you didn't do. And so when you formulate your goal for the next situation, it's going to be based on what you realized coming out of the last one. Hmm. And, you know, you do that every day for years, you're going to get unbelievably good. Now, I hope everyone out there in Cut the Crap Podcast Nation is really, really listening to that point there because I know that there's so many of you in sales positions. I talk to a lot of you in marketing positions who really struggle to get great at your craft. And the one thing I hear all the time is there's so much to do in marketing. There's so many different aspects to marketing and sales. How do I get good at it, Ryan? Well, what people don't know is that there's 37 different you know, job descriptions for marketing and there's 37 different areas <laughs> right. of specialization. So how can you become great at marketing? You have to pick something, niche in right. that. And that's what I always say, figure out what it is you are passionate about, get great in that area, focus on the area, become a master in that area. Then once you master that area, go out and focus on something else that you want to add to your repertoire. It's a very right. difficult thing and it's very stressful, but by having a framework in place to help you achieve that mastery, to help crystallize it, to give you a path, something to follow, a roadmap, makes it a lot more achievable. So I love that. You're, you're so right, Ryan. And, you know, there are fields and sales and marketing is one of them where it is not traditional to have a teacher or a coach. That's right. You know, you're just like you're supposed to do it. You're just supposed to go out and do it. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, 
it is very valuable to have a teacher or a coach. And since that isn't kind of conventional or traditional, you're probably going to have to find somebody on your own and ask them if they'll help you. Mm-hmm. And the value of that is twofold. One, they can observe you and see how you're doing. They can give you the feedback that only they, you know, only an outside observer can give you. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is because they are, let's hope, more experienced and more uh, accomplished than you, they will be able to tell you what you ought to be working on next mm-hmm. because they've been there. You know, it's something that we should all remember, even in fields where we don't traditionally have teachers. The best golfers in the world still work with teachers. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter how good you are. Having someone who can observe you from the outside and tell you what you need to be working on next is really valuable. That's a fantastic point. I'm glad you made it. I know all of you listening right now, you know my story. And Jeff, you know, you don't know my story, but for me, I always tell people this, and this is just something that I believe helped me avoid so many mistakes is I worked with great mentors early on. Mm. Uh, The author of The Ultimate Sales Machine, Chet Holmes. Um, Chet Holmes was my mentor and helped me uh, essentially understand sales, understand marketing. Uh, I worked with different individuals, um, mentors, and I still continue to work with mentors today. And I love to not be the smartest person in the room uh, and to always have different people there coaching me, guiding me, uh, telling me what I should be doing next. And I really think that that's something that everybody should be um, striving to find in their life, um, a mentor, somebody who can coach them and take the next step. So valuable. In golden nugget number four, we're going to look at deliberate practice and how it turns people who follow this deliberate practice, how they perceive they know and they remember more. And it even alters their brain and their body. And you made a mention of that a little bit earlier. So help us understand this more. How does that happen? You know, it is, it's just astounding when you wonder why these people are so good. It's because exact, they, they have exactly these abilities you mentioned. So, okay, they perceive more. Well, how can they perceive more, right? We're all looking at the same thing. How can they perceive more? Well, here's a great example. Um, Tennis players at the top of the game, at the highest levels of the game, uh, when that serve comes at them, it is coming at them so fast that it goes from the racket of the server to the service line of the other player in about a quarter of a second. Mm. Okay, that's how hard they hit the tennis ball. So if you're the other player, you've got a quarter of a second to get into position to return that serve. Well, when you put it that way, you'd say this is clearly impossible. Nobody can react that fast. Mm -hmm. And yet they do react that fast. How do they do it? Here's how it turns out. They don't look at the tennis ball as the server is serving it. Instead, they look at the server's hips Mm -hmm. and elbows and feet. Because by looking at that, they can tell where the serve is going to go before it is hit. They perceive things that you and I would never perceive because they have learned how to do it. And thus they can get themselves into position to return the serve before the serve is even hit. Well, that's a metaphor for what great performers in every field can do. Mm. Uh, They have learned their field so well that they can see things the rest of us don't see at all. 
that's part of what comes with right. doing deliberate practice for years and years. Right. Um, they know more. Uh, this is really fundamental, but it wasn't always obvious. The greatest performers simply know more about their field than other people do. And that you say, well, duh, you know, what could be more <laughs> obvious than that? The truth is there was a time when a lot of uh, supposed experts thought that you didn't really need to know a lot about a given field. You just had to have certain skills. Hmm. Uh, and so indeed, uh, in the world of business, there was a time uh, a few decades ago, not so long ago, when the view in top business schools was what you needed to be a great manager was just a set of managerial skills. Hmm. And if you had them, then you could be dropped into any business, right? You could be running a food business or a steel business or a consultant. It didn't make any difference. If you had the managerial skills, you didn't need to know much about the field itself. That's what they thought. Hmm. Well, the research now is very clear. That's simply not true. The more you know about your field, uh, the better you're going to be. And that's one reason that great performance in one field often does not translate into great performance in other fields, even where you might think it does. Uh, so, you know, people used to say, well, Michael Jordan is just a great athlete. What a natural <laughs> athlete he is, right? World's greatest basketball player. Well, you may recall that he then actually went into play professional baseball uh, when he left basketball. He was going to become a professional baseball player, and he was on a minor league team. But he never even made it to the major leagues because expertise typically does not transfer very well. It depends on knowledge of that field. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you do deliberate practice for years and years, you will accumulate more knowledge than others because you're always pushing yourself to do stuff and learn stuff you don't know already. That's right. Um, and then remembering more. This also turns out to be uh, really important. The secret to great memory isn't really a secret. We know how it's done. And it's done by having a mental structure, a mental model of how things work in your field that you can then hang things on. Everything, every new thing you learn will be connected with some part of that mental model that's already there. And so um, the great performers have that, or, you know, they're so deeply immersed in their field that they have that mental model of how the whole thing works. Every time they learn something new, they can hang it on a piece of that mental model because it relates to something they already know. And so they remember more. Mm -hmm. And this comes in incredibly handy, as you can imagine, uh, when, you're, when you're doing it. So an example of that, uh, firefighters. Um, great fire, it turns out there's a big difference between really good firefighters and not so good firefighters. Mm -hmm. And the research, there's research on this. When firefighters are looking at a building on fire, the novice firefighters, the ones who are not too good, you know, they see a lot of flames and a lot of smoke and, uh, you know, they can see what parts of the building it's coming out of. But that's that's pretty much what they notice. Right. 
The great firefighters look at the same situation and they see a story. They see a story. They, they are putting together a whole story. How did that fire start? Well, they can figure it out. What's it doing right now? What does that mean about where it's going to go? Right? Because they have a mental model of how fires work in a building. And so whatever something happens, they can make it part of that model and understand more about what's going to happen next. Hmm, that's incredible. And I think that you can apply that lesson to almost anything when you're working with mentors. You can. It's, yes. It's funny. Because I'll, I'll give you a really funny story. I've never told this story before, but it was, it's a great example of this. When I was working with Chet, uh, Chet Holmes, he, yes. he I, I suggested to him a marketing strategy that I wanted to employ. And he said, okay, well, Ryan, it's not going to work because of X, because of Y, because of Z. And because I was a lot younger, I was filled with, you know, bravado and overconfidence. And I said, nah, Jeff, it's an experiment. I'm going to run it. I know it's going to work. I know it's going to work. He goes, well, Ryan, I, this is why I don't think. And so I interrupted him. I said, no, it's going to work, Chet. Just let me run with it. He goes, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send you a letter in the mail. Okay, old, old school snail mail. I'm going to send you a letter in the mail. Yeah. And on there, I'm going to say, what is going to happen when you right. execute on this campaign? He goes, don't open it up. Open right. it up only when you fully executed your campaign. And so funny story, fast forward it. Uh, I executed my campaign, my, my, my go-to-market campaign, and uh, it did not go as I had planned. <laughs> so when, I, when it went well, or, or sorry, when it went that way, that way, I opened up the letter. And in there he had, I think it was about nine bullets of what would happen. And every single bullet was absolutely <laughs> right. And I got on the phone. He started laughing. He goes, now will you listen to me? He goes, I just, he goes, I've been there, man. I've done that. I know how this goes. So again, it goes to show, you know, the, the importance of expertise and obviously Chet Holmes, the amount of times um, or the amount of time he spent in his field, you know, a lot of deliberate practice there. And because of that, you know, he perceived more, he knew more and he remembered more. And because of that, he put it into practice in his, in his career. And that's what made him so great. And uh, yeah. it was a great lesson. And so it's just funny. I've never told that story before, but this is a perfect place for it. It is, and it's a great story because he'd been through a lot. But as we said at the very beginning, we we know lots of people who've been through a lot. He was learning, right? He was pushing himself every day Mm -hmm. to get better. He was learning, uh, creating a mental model so that when he heard your idea, he could see a story, Mm -hmm. not just some facts. That's right. Yeah, incredibly powerful, incredibly powerful. So now we go to golden nugget number five, Jeff. And in golden nugget number five, we talk about people who are elite in their chosen field. Now, these people in their chosen field, these elite individuals, they do what you call self-regulate. So they continuously self-regulate. Tell us what this is exactly. Well, the, the reality is that in most of our lives, you know, most of us work in businesses of one kind or another or big organizations or organizations of one kind or another. And for most of that, there isn't a tradition of practicing apart from the performance itself. Uh, it's, it's funny that there isn't this tradition because we all know how important it is uh, in sports and in music. Uh, the great performers spend 95, I did this with a calculator, actually, will spend 95% of their time practicing hmm. and 5% of their time actually doing the performance, wow. you know, actually uh, 
you know, playing in the game in a real game for, uh, you know, where it counts, forming their musical instrument before an audience. The vast majority of their time they spend uh, practicing. Well, in most of our business lives, we spend close to 0% of our time practicing. Mm. We're, you know, we are expected to just go out there and do it. All right. Well, so how are you going to do deliberate practice when your whole day is taken up by having to perform? Mm -hmm. There is a way, and it's what you just referred to. It's what what the researchers call self-regulation. So what that means is uh, you, you find a way to practice within the work itself. And for example, there is uh, the uh, procedure that I, I briefly referred to earlier. Think of it as before, during, and after the, the, the actual work that you're doing. Before you begin a task, whatever it may be, uh, earlier I described a sales call, but it could be anything else. It could be something you do alone at your desk. It could be anything else. It could be a, uh, another uh, something that a lot of people absolutely hate which is giving a performance review uh, to someone or receiving a performance review, whatever it may be. Before the task, devote some time to thinking about what you want to achieve and make it as specific as possible. Really take the time to think it through Mm. and and focus on one specific aspect of it. Mm. So think about that beforehand. Then... During the task, pause, at least mentally, pause every once in a while and say to yourself, okay, how's it going? You know, am I doing what I really wanted to do? Have I gone off track? Uh, How's it going? Hmm. And then afterwards, go by yourself, sit down and think about how it went. And ideally with a pencil in your hand and write down your observations Mm. and, you know, reflect and say, how did this go? What did I miss? What could I have done better? Uh, What new questions does this raise? And write that stuff down. Mm. And then the next time you go into a similar task, look over the notes you made. Because you are guaranteed to come up with something new to focus on the next time you do the task. Now, that is really effective at getting you the advantages of deliberate practice, even when it isn't really practice. It's, you know, it's actual performance, Hmm. but it's a way to get you the benefits of deliberate practice as part of the work. Oh, that's powerful, Jeff. I really like that. And I hope everyone listening right now, you're really taking note of that. And Jeff laid it out so nicely. Go back over that, rewind it, and definitely take down those notes because that in combination with, you know, what we talked about earlier in the episode about how to uh, actually uh, fulfill deliberate practice, how to actually do practice deliberately, um, in combination with this idea of self-regulation is an incredibly powerful point that will help you achieve mastery, this world-class ability that you are are desiring, which leaves us now, Jeff, to our last golden nugget for the episode, golden nugget number six, which is you can develop talent or expertise in any discipline. 
So we started off yeah. by saying, hey, everyone's mediocre, but now we're going to end off on a positive note by saying you can develop talent or expertise in a discipline. But hold on, just as I end off on a positive note, I'm going to get you to now come in and set expectations for everybody because right. getting uh, to that world-class level, gaining expertise in a discipline, it's difficult to do. And yes. so maybe provide us with a reality check and provide us with some insight um, about um, what it takes to become world-class. Absolutely. And it's such an important point. So, for example, just a minute ago when I was talking about self-regulation and doing the things before, during and after a given task in order to get better at them, I know for a fact that a lot of people will hear that and think, yeah, it sounds good, but what a lot of work. You know, (laughs) I'm already working really hard and now you're telling me to do something extra that will take more time and more thought, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a lot of work. And to that, I say, yes, it is. (laughs) And I I, I want to emphasize two points here. One, the absolutely central point that you made at the very beginning, which was this uh, idea that I'm talking about, this whole big idea that I'm talking about is actually incredibly liberating because it means that you don't need a natural gift. You you don't have to come into the world with some one in a million ability that you have just been given and most people haven't. That doesn't make any difference. So it, it great performance is available to you. The second point is it's hard. Okay? I'm not giving anything away for free here. <laughs> it is hard. And in fact, uh, it's so interesting. The researchers have found something out here, which I have now found out myself as I travel around talking about this. When you talk to the great performers of this world, so many of them have the same experience. People come up to them and say, oh, you're so talented. What a gift you have. And those people are trying to be nice. They, they mean it as a compliment. And so typically the recipient smiles and say, well, gee, thanks. But inside, they resent it. Mm. And they resent it because they know they didn't have a natural gift. They weren't given the ability to do this. They earned it. They worked at it unbelievably hard and reached this on their own. So they, they know what really went into it. And yes, the truth is, it's a lot of work. In fact, it's a very common experience when I talk to people or organizations that have applied these principles. For example, uh, an organization that made medical products uh, decided to take these principles that I wrote about and apply them to the introduction of a new product. They were going to train the sales force using the principles of deliberate practice. And so... They did. They put them through exercises over and over and over with their sales presentations, with coaches telling them how to do it, and then they had to do them over again. And they were videotaped and so they could watch and, and were made to do certain things better. And over and over, high repetition, constantly being pushed to do better and better. And they did it for six weeks. Okay. Two things came out of this. One all the salespeople complained, right? 
This was a lot of work, <laughs> what much more work than they were accustomed to for introducing a new product. And it's not what their peers were doing. <laughs> Nobody else in the business was doing this kind of stuff, <laughs> right? Why are we doing it? And they were good salespeople. They wanted to be out there selling. They didn't want to be sitting in a conference room practicing their presentations over and over. So that was the first thing. They were all upset and not happy about it because it was so much work. Mm. The second thing was the results were off the charts. Mm. Before the training, about 25% of their customers were converting to the new product. After the training, 95% of their customers were converting to the new product. Wow. This was millions and millions of dollars of incremental profit that the company made. It, mm -hmm. I, the, the executives told me they were hoping for good results. This was beyond anything they ever imagined. Wow. And this is the common experience. It's a lot of work, more work than most people are accustomed to doing, and it is always way more than worth it. Mm. We see this time and again. Talent is overrated. What really separates world-class performers from everybody else. Jeff Colvin, my friend, this was an absolute pleasure having you on the show, talking about something that is near and dear to my heart. Um, you know, this idea of working hard, this idea of deliberate practice. All of this is so damn important. If you take pride in your work and you want to take things to the next level, I don't know if you're an athlete, if you are um, you know, a professional in accounting and marketing and sales and product development, whatever it is you do, you're in HR, it doesn't matter. There's always an opportunity for you to take your skills and take them to the next step. And the insights that Jeff shared with us today will allow you to do that. And Jeff, like I said, it was such a pleasure having you on the show. If anyone wants to get in touch with you, if anyone wants to um, um, share some information with you online, if they want to read your articles, how can they go about doing that? Well, of course, it's real easy at uh, Twitter and LinkedIn and at my own website, which is just jeffcolvin.com. However, we always have to spell Jeff because it is uh, <laughs> spelled uh, G. E-O-F-F. -F. That's, That's right. Jeff, G-E-O-F-F, Colvin, C-O-L-V as in Victor, I-N, jeffcolvin.com. And you can always get me very easily that way. Wonderful. And Jeff, I got to tell you, I got to get you back on the show to talk about humans are underrated. Again, that one's right on my bookshelf behind me. I'm going to pick that one up. I'm going to crack that one this weekend and give it a read. And I'd love to have you back on the show talking to uh, myself and everyone out there in Cut the Crap Podcast Nation. I'd love to do it, Ryan. Thank you. You really went to the heart of this one, and it was a real pleasure. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Jeff. I appreciate it. Thanks, Ryan. All right. There we have it. That is Jeff Colvin's book, Talent is Overrated, What Really Separates World-Class Performers. Absolutely love talking to Jeff. Man, doesn't he have a good voice? God, I love his voice. I want to get him on the podcast just to hear the man's voice again. He's got a voice for radio, eh? But I, it was a great interview overall, great topic, great discussion, great takeaways, and I hope that you also agree and that you found a lot of these takeaways to be of value to you and hopefully inspire you to want to become world-class because all of us, all of us have the ability to become world-class if we work hard at it, if we focus on deliberate practice, if we get good feedback. He lays it out for us in the podcast. I hope you took notes. If you didn't, go back over, listen to the podcast again. And try to put some of those things into practice. I know I will. 
If you like this episode, then again, please go online, rate and review the show. Send me your ranking, your review to podcast at ryancalajury.com and I'll make sure you get entered into the draw this quarter for the Apple HomePod, Google Home, or the Amazon Echo. Again, don't forget to connect with me on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. If you're going to engage with me, it's probably best to do that through Twitter and LinkedIn. I'm most active there. However, like I told you before in previous weeks, I'm going to get my Instagram and Facebook game on, just planning out my strategy in terms of how I'm going to make maintain that and get it going long term. Almost there, but uh, right now, if you really want to engage with me, LinkedIn, Twitter, it's the best way to do it. All right, my friends, that is a wrap for this week. So thank you so much to every single one of you for tuning in again. It always means a lot to me that you tune in. If you want to reach out to me, do not hesitate. Reach out to me. You can email me through podcast at ryancalajury.com as well, and I'll get it. Or go through uh, cutthecrappodcast.com or ryancalajury.com, and you can email me through there as well. But in any case, my friends, I hope you all have a fantastic week, a productive week, and you know that I will be back here next week with a brand new book, brand new Golden Nuggets, an interview with an author. And like I said, every single week, I'm here just trying to save you a little bit of time and bring you some information that can spark change in your life. Take care, everybody. Have a fantastic week. I love you guys. Maybe it's my fault. Maybe I led you to believe it was easy when it wasn't. Maybe I made you think my highlights started at the free throw line and not in the gym. Maybe I made you think that every shot I took was a game winner. That my game was built on flash and not fire. Maybe it's my fault that you didn't see that failure gave me strength, that my pain was my motivation. Maybe I led you to believe that basketball was a God-given gift and not something I worked for every single day of my life. Maybe I destroyed the game. Or maybe you just making excuses.